Hello and welcome to In the Thick of It, Profit and Losses weekly podcast. Myself, Galen Stops, editor of P&L, and I am joined by Colin Lambert, everyone's favourite uncle. <laughs> yes, thank you to the gentleman that put that on the email. I'm not going to leave that on there for a while. <laughs> so, so listeners, understand, we got a, Colin and I received an email today which referred to, to me by name and then just Uncle Colin. So he will henceforth always be known in the office as Uncle Colin. Yes, and not necessarily the affable uncle either, so watch yourself. <laughs> <laughs> well, more like the drunk belligerent one. <laughs> yeah, well, occasionally maybe. Rumour has it. I couldn't possibly comment. Move on. <laughs> <laughs> um, so to kick us off this week, Colin, you and I um, seem to have had um, some fairly similar conversations with uh, two firms on kind of the opposite side of the globe. Yes, yeah, it's like sliding doors, isn't it, really, or sort of you know, <laughs> mirror images. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I thought it was interesting, actually, yeah, great communication within P&L. Um, we found out about it when we published. But, um, <laughs> yeah, we, I mean, we've both written stories on, on people trying to push the FX options market forward in terms of automation and um, uh, electronification, which... Yeah. I thought, I mean, obviously, Digital Vega was one, um, and Digital Vega's been around for some time, and um, I think, you know, it, it, it got reasonable early traction. Well, the impression is it got reasonable early traction, went through a sort of period of sort of treading water um, when, you know, things were progressing, but you never got the, the, the feeling that it was going to suddenly, you know, really expand dramatically. Um, but that seems to have changed with you know with your conversation with Mark Sousa, the CEO, and at the same time I had a conversation with Anshul Jain in uh, Singapore, who's um, established a new venture called Synoption, um, which pretty much is going to seek to do the same thing. I mean, he, he had some really interesting ideas around sort of you know from from my perspective, learning from the mistakes of the spot industry. Okay. So, so, um, so one thing before we get into this. Before we get into this, one thing I wanted to ask you, which was, you and I have talked a fair amount recently about, um, you know, more automation and more kind of electronification of non-spot products. We've tended to focus a lot on kind of swaps and forwards lately. Um, do you kind of agree with the, the kind of the fundamental thesis of both these platforms that the FX options market is now ready to go more electronic in terms of execution? Yeah, I think it's the FX market generally. Actually, I think what we're seeing here yeah. is the, the same th the same sort of sub themes and undercurrent that we've been picking up on in FX swaps for the last couple of weeks, last couple of months, probably last year. Um, <laughs> yeah, is happening is happening in FX options as well. I think what's happening is you've got clients now. You've got this sort of you know, confluence of interests uh, whereby you've got um, you know revenue pressures. So people are looking to cut costs as much as they can on the service provider side, um, and that often means greater automation. Mm -hmm. Then you've got the customers who are looking, they're putting more focus on their FX activities and their best execution requirements in FX. So they're looking to put their dealers into competition. And so you've kind of got this thing where you've got the sell side looking for uh, more efficiencies, and you've got the buy side looking for, um, I guess, greater competition. 
amongst their service providers. I mean, one of the points that was made to me when um, talking to Angel Jane about the SIN option thing was, you know, he's, he, he was um, running FX options for JP Morgan in Singapore for many years. And he said the problem he had was that um, he, also, he then moved to the buy side with Ballyasney Asset Manager. And he said the problem he had at Ballyasney was um, if he wanted to put dealers in competition, he pretty much had to open up four different screens and that creates screen real estate problems. Now obviously like solutions do exist um, and you don't know about the nuances of the model that he was actually after because obviously digital Vega can do things like this. Um, yeah. But yeah, well, he, uh, he was talking about you know, the lack of the, the problems with screen real estate for the buy side. Um, from a sell side perspective, he was talking in terms of he never felt as though the aggregators that the sell side had access to you know, to give them that sort of you know, a better liquidity profile um, actually did the job either. And that was pretty much, you know, his reasoning when he set the firm up um, just, well, I guess maybe 18 months ago, something like that. So, so, so yeah, that, I think it's, a, I mean, what we're seeing is a validation of electronic trading that we've had in spot for many years. I think it's now finally we're seeing it happening in every other FX product. So, th- so that's very similar to actually what I heard talking to Digital Vega Um so, you know, they were saying kind of on the, you know, the sell side, the banks have said that the cost of trading between themselves by voice brokers is, is very expensive and it's getting less and less efficient. Yep. There's more regulatory scrutiny over it. So they'd like to put more on the electronic. And, you know, they've actually um, hired uh, Rob Wemmis, who was um, 25 years with JPM, and he was most recently their global head of FX options. And, he, you know, he was saying the same thing about real estate. He was saying that, that you know, you can... A lot of it on the the sell side, seen a lot of electric, uh, activity on the FX options go onto screen on their single dealer platform. But from the the buy side perspective, you know, you then have to have you, know, you can have six single dealer platforms on their desktop to check prices across each. But it's not a very efficient way for them to to analyze best prices and then, as you say, demonstrate that they've achieved best execution and got the best price out there. It's an interesting one because I mean. Um, the top-end uh, single-dealer platforms, definitely, you definitely have the ability to just like snap out a window. So you can actually sort of look at it and just snap out four different pricing windows in a particular option uh, or a particular currency pair if you're doing it in spot and just build your own screen. You know, you can take the spot from City, you know, JP Morgan, Deutsche, UBS, Goldman Sachs, you know, other banks exist. Um so you can you can you can take you, you can you can do that. I think the problem is when it comes to options, there's so much other information that dealers want on the screen. Yeah. That it you know it becomes you're suddenly snapping out a big big chunk of re- screen real estate to get four of them up there. So yeah, I mean it's um, I guess you know my feeling my sense is this has happened before. You know, probably 15 years ago, somebody and. and I've been racking my brains trying to think who it was, but I think about 15 years ago, I remember seeing something we are where the customer can sit there and, and look at their um, strategy, build their strategy, yeah, look at the... They didn't really have the analytics available, but they knew what they wanted to do and they could put dealers in competition. Listeners, maybe I remind me who that was, but for, <laughs> for some reason... Yeah, for some reason, I think they may have been... They may have been bought by CME at some stage, or I may be getting confused with some of the interest rate, interest rate swaps space. Um, but yeah, so I, I, I had the feeling that this has happened before, um, but just the time wasn't right. And I think now the big difference here, and I think we're both picking up on it, is the time is right. 
I mean, incidentally, I mean, you know, what the hell's going on with J.P. Morgan's FX options business? Uh, <laughs> senior people they've lost in the last couple of years. I mean, really, oh, the bank's falling apart. Jamie Dimon, do something about it. I know. Um, so, so what, one thing that, that came out in my conversation with Digital Vega was they were at pains to to emphasise that as they kind of build up this platform, they wanted to look and feel like a single dealer platform. And what they meant by this was it was yeah. not enough just to have pricing and liquidity. You know, you need to yeah. have the tools. They're building out the data to do more kind of TCA type stuff. Um, did that kind of thing, that that kind of the necessity of having. Um, a good amount of functionality around the execution come up in your conversation? Absolutely. I mean, that was, frankly, that was the core to it. Um, it's, you know, the pre-trade analytics were, um, I, he was a little coy on where the data comes from. It comes from a third-party provider. Um, but I would imagine that's an independent, you know, provider like a affinity of Bloomberg or something like that. Um and the analytics are something that they created themselves, I guess, you know, based around what he's used before in the past. Um, but no, absolutely, the analytics was the key to it because you can sit there and play around with what ifs. Um, you can you can save your strategy, just bring it back and click to get price from you know, multiple banks. Um, on the TCA side, the analytics um, piece um, on the Synoption platform basically uh, looked at, um, it gave you a representation of the quotes that you received and when you receive them. So you could you can show just in one window there, okay, look, there was my four quotes, say, and, you know, yes, I've hit the best, which was highlighted, you know, obviously. Um, but also it, uh, the analytics package allowed you to look at what the prices being quoted were in the run-up to you trading mm-hmm. and, during, and during the RFQ process. So, again, very much based around this sort of regulatory push to make sure that people are doing the right thing. Um, I, I, it sounds very, very similar. The only difference is, I think, that um, obviously, like, you know, Digital Vega is very much sort of Occidental-based uh, at the moment, um, although I noticed that Mark Sitter did say, like, you're looking to expand in yeah. Singapore. And actually, to be fair, I think this is a great time to be in FX Options in Singapore because both platforms are looking for good people. Yeah. So, um, you know, if, if you're good at FX options and you want to live in Singapore, then I suggest you get in contact with either of them and they're in their <laughs> advert for this issue. Um, but I think, yeah, I mean, Sin Options at the moment is going to be Singapore only. I mean, very much I think he wants to sort of walk before he runs. Yeah. Um, but, you know, the, the concept's been proven and I think the concept has got a lot of value in it. Um, but, yeah, at the moment it's like walk before he runs. So it's going to stay Singapore hours only for a, for a period of time. And probably only like you know a few months, and then it will um, evolve into you know pushing into I would imagine the London hours it would make you, you sense. You mentioned you mentioned before Synoption, you know, was talking about avoiding some of the mistakes or, or problems of the spot market. Can you kind of elaborate yeah. on that a little bit? Yeah, I mean, basically, I think the the so the best execution, like the the, compar- the comparison of the traders, allows the sort of, you know, the user to sort of, you know, as we were saying, fulfill their best execution op- um, requirements. <laughs> best execution options, blimey, here we go. Um, <laughs> so there's going to be way too many options in this, isn't it? So I think on the um, on that side of it, you know, they've got the, they're going to keep, I don't want to use the word keep the banks honest because that's not the right phrase, but you know what I'm saying. It, yeah. You know, put them in competition, allows them to be yeah, able to yeah. turn around and say, you know, look, actually, 
you know, your pricing is not good enough. And and also the analytics to put the to judge LPs by, you know, who quotes quickest, who has the best spreads, um, who actually more often, you know, maybe shows a skew in your direction because they they have you know natural interest. So that's you know worth looking at. Um, so the clients get the executionals, which I think, generally speaking, the spot market got right. Although they're a little late with algos, and I don't think there's any algos going to be involved in these platforms just yet. The interesting thing for me was the protection they're putting in for the um, liquidity providers. So they have like, um, I, um, I think I, I just I just checked the the article. I'm sure it said an hour, but there, there, there's a significant blackout period. So if a, if a trade if a client trades on an option. Um, they basically will not be able to try click again for some period of time. Okay. So effectively, you're looking at yeah, they can't just sit there and just keep on going. Yours, 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 yeah. yours, yours. You know, and and just literally ruin liquidity. Um, so that kind of helps, like, um, I guess, give, provide some sort of sweet protection as well. So the price blacks out for that client. Um, they've got a patent thing on this arbitrage protection um, as well. So if a client, uh, sorry, if an LP price is dramatically wrong, um, the platform will inform them. I mean, it's a little bit of a grey area, to be honest. I'm not sure it's been totally worked out yet, but the platform will inform them that their price is an outlier. Um, and generally speaking, rather than show a reverse price, they'll show a choice price to the client. Okay. So there'll be an improvement for both sides. But in that way, it protects the LP. Because, I mean, the, the challenge is, I always think the challenge with these things is, you know, if someone makes a price, and, and I'm, I'm, I know I'm old school on this, and we are, you know, we are grumpy Uncle Colin now, um, <laughs> but if you make a wrong price, whose fault is that? I don't, I, you know, you have, to, you have to be responsible for your errors. And if you make a mistake, if, you're, if your technology makes a mistake then it's your fault. So if you make a wrong price, yeah, you know what? If it's egregiously wrong because of some unforeseen error, then talk to the counterparty and go, okay, there you go. Look, we think this price is wrong. I think you agree because you were willing to trade a lot further away. Um, can we agree to repaper this trade? But um, arbitrarily changing prices is an interesting one um, because, you know, who, who's especially in liquid EM pairs, Who's to know where the real price is sometimes? But, yeah. yeah. Uh, so one, one other oh, thing I wanted yeah. to ask you about this, yeah. which was yeah. um, reading your article. So it, it sounds like Synoption came through. Did they come through the MAS sort of fintech sandbox? Is that how it works? Yes. They're actually in okay. it now. They're in it now. Okay. They're um, actually in the sandbox I, I, now, which means they don't have a regulatory requirement. They don't need a license for nine months. Although... Um, Angel Jane was quite confident that the license that they're they're ahead of where they need to be, and the license will be um, applied for and granted before that. So yeah, they come through the yeah. sandbox. I mean, this is part. Of, I mean, this is definitely part of Singapore's push to become an FX hub. Yeah, so I actually saw someone from MAS. Um, I can't remember if they posted or shared our article on. Uh, LinkedIn. So they're obviously, I mean, MAS, if I'm not mistaken, they're quite enthusiastic, not even just in FX, but in general, you know, they do their FinTech week. They're quite supportive and they want to be seen very much yep. as a FinTech hub and they're trying to promote this. Is that right? Yes, absolutely. 
Yeah, I mean, I mean, I, I guess you look at it. You know, they're a city state. They don't have they don't have that much in the way of industry. They yeah. have pretty much zero in the way of agriculture. Um, they have a great uh, location in terms of the port. Obviously, there's so much freight goes through Singapore. It's untrue. Um, so financial services and you know, fintech is made for somewhere like that. So yeah, yeah, I mean, as you say, fintech week in Singapore is huge. Um, the MAS. I mean, I think it's three years now, or coming up for three years since they announced that they wanted to, you know, they were going to support anyone that put in um, a pricing engine into Singapore. They wanted to make Singapore an FX hub. Um, I think they're a little bit more delicate. I think we can be a little less delicate. They want to become the FX hub of Asia. Yeah. I think they want to make sure, you know, I mean, at the moment, due to where the primary markets are, I think people still tend to look at Japan as being the Asia hub. Um, yeah. I think that's changing, and frankly, well, you yeah, can see the BIS that, numbers. That, that yeah, BIS yeah. numbers. Japan as a market share has been you know fairly steadily yeah. eroding for a while now. Yeah, I mean, I think partly that's because of the zero interest rate environment in Japan, and yeah, I mean, I, mean, I think they've been in zero interest rates longer than they've been in anything else. I think. Um, it's, I mean, it's getting. I think there's some emperors haven't. There's plenty of emperors haven't lasted as long as the zero interest rate environment. Um, but obviously, <laughs> there's no volatility in the yen. So there's no real trading. Um, it will be interesting to see what happens to the volume data if, if the yen suddenly got volatile the way it was, you know, maybe a decade and a half ago. Um, but no, I, th- I think, yeah, this is part of Singapore's push to become the FX hub in Asia. Um, time zone-wise, they've got an extra hour towards London. So it kind of works, although it does lengthen the witching hour between New York and, and Asia. Um, yeah. Clearly, there's grants available, and, and Synoption got a grant from MAS um, to help to help them establish it. Um, you know, I think these things come with some strings attached. I think the MAS or the Singapore government wants to see, um, you know, certain things done by certain dates and and the whole process done in a certain fashion. Um, but no, I think as long as it promotes so, Singapore, then you'll probably get so M- what's, MAS what's, support. What's the trade-off that has to be made then? You get you get extra support, guidance, and help, but you give up a bit of control. No, I don't think it's that. I think it's just a question of you have. To, I think you have to. I mean, a, a lot of the times people don't think around things like publicity. And I okay. think part of the thing is, yeah. Talk, I mean, I've been talking to people before. You know, when we've been talking about pricing engines and so on, going to Singapore, and they've told me that you know the MAS has been very keen, which I think is a delicate way of putting it. <laughs> to have the fact that they are putting a pricing engine into Singapore publicised. So I think it's things like that. It's, you know, okay, you can here's a grant, you can come in our sandbox, whatever it may be, um, and that's fine. A we want A we want to make sure that you're actually spending it you know, properly and building a proper platform, which I think you know these people everyone does. Um and B, I think the other thing they look at is and I, and we want to make sure that you're out there promoting this to Singapore uh, sorry, to the world which helps Singapore as a financial hub. Right, got it. So I don't, um, think, it's, I don't think it's particularly onerous. I think it's just, you know, just what they do. And, and speaking of, of the the kind of the angle of Singapore pushing the uh, it, the idea of being kind of the FX trading hub for Asia, um, you published an article this week about uh, Standard Chartered making some sort of claims about super fast latency yep. from Singapore. Can you talk to us a bit about that? Well, I have to say, first of all, it was brilliant. I mean, this is the, I have to say, this is only the um, 
the way my email works, you know, the way my email's set up. But I, I need to, I, I'll just read it. I looked at, I looked, the email came in my inbox and I looked at it and I went, okay, yeah, that's fine. And, I, and it read as follows. Um, oh, I can't, I did have it up. It's going to be a bit of a letdown, isn't it? Oh, no, here we go. Um, Standard Charters' first e-trade using FX e-trade and engine in Singapore results in significant latency. <laughs> <laughs> and, I, and I read that, and I'm like, okay, that's not what I expected to see. Um, yeah, it's yeah. because the, the, the headline of the press release was so long that the words reduction couldn't, the word reduction couldn't fit into the headline. So they might want to think about that one in terms yeah. of in terms of like the press release. But yeah, I mean, um, what it was, um, so Standard Chart did their first e-trade um, using their, using their sort of, you know, their Singapore engine. And they, they uh, said it was an 80% reduction in latency. Um, now the, it's not totally clear. I mean, I suspect. I mean, there's nothing wrong with it. But you know, you could look at it and say, okay, it achieved an 80% latency reduction over a trade done with somebody in New York. Now, obviously, that would be you know, there would be significant latency reduction there. Um, yeah. The other thing I would say was it was done with um, UOB, so another another local bank. So this is local to local trading. Yep. Um, so yes, you'd expect that sort of, you know, if you're only using, if both parties are only going to the, um, you know, to the local, um, exchange of, oh, oh, sorry, what they call it, local hub, then, um, yes, obviously you will get, um, significant latency on that. Um, they also said they've seen significant uplift in their e channels. The only thing I didn't understand was with the press. It said the first trade conducted from 3:15 p.m. in Singapore delivered a 40% increase in trading volume compared to the average daily volume in the same trade period last week. So I think what they're saying is at some stage, I think what they're saying is the new um, hub is giving them increased trading volume because yeah. maybe they can handle more flow. Um, that wasn't yeah, yeah. particularly clear um, to come back into it. I mean, I think you know. Again, I think this comes back to the MAS saying, look, yeah, well done, but can you get publicity out there um, to sort of, you know, to show, pe- to show people what's going on, um, which is fair enough. I mean, I don't think there's a problem with that. Um, there is, now, the one thing I wanted to check, actually, because in Singapore, they do, they sometimes sort of show you, this is stuff in, you know, with local counterparties, but I don't think they did it in the last one. Oh, yeah, counterparties in Singapore, sorry. Um so if you look at counterparties in Singapore and outside Singapore, generally speaking, in terms of spot transaction, it's a minute amount. I mean, there was like 120, 130 yards of um, dollars were traded with counterparties in Singapore on average last October. Oh, sorry, last April. Um, but there were 2.2 trillion. This is in the total month, not daily. But there was 2.2 yep. trillion traded um, with counterparties outside Singapore. So you know, you're looking at probably five percent of volume being um, local to local. So those those latency reductions will probably be on a, a smaller amount of trades. Um, yeah. But again, you know, as more players um, establish pricing engines in in Singapore, 
then you should see these latency reductions elsewhere. I mean, it, it, to me, it was interesting to see a um, an actual number put on you know how you can reduce latency by having a local hub. Yeah. So I've got um, as a, a side note, I've got a good story about uh, long uh, subject lines on on emails, which was one one time I won't say uh, where or, or with whom, but um, I, an email came in that said. Uh, emerging, you know, lots of text, and then it was like a sort of forum, emerging, MA, dot, dot, dot. So I thought it was an emerging markets forum, and I had, you know, some emerging markets content coming up. Great. So hopped on a flight, went to this event, sat down on the first day, flipping through the agenda. Didn't see a whole lot of uh, emerging market stuff on there. Flipping through some more. Is this, am, I in the, am I in the right room? Um, flip through some more. Turns out I hadn't really ever clicked on the email through properly. I just glanced at it and booked everything. It was a, a an emerging managers forum. So, you know, it was all like, you know, what to do with your first million under management and stuff like that. Um, well, that will help. Yeah, it will help. You know, next time we go, next time we go to Happy Valley and, and win big, which we did obviously in, in November, in case ever, anybody's forgotten it. Um, but when next time we're in big in, in Happy Valley, mate, that could be important knowledge for you. Yeah. What oh, to yeah. do with your first million under management? Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. Like, I, I, I know all the accounting tips. I got some, some marketing yeah. tips. Yeah, I know what I'm doing. I, I, I have to confess, I, <laughs> one year at Forex Network Chicago, I um, misread the email as well and went to uh, went to the wrong JP Morgan party. Um, <laughs> it was, I think it was the, uh, it was 2009 or 2010. Either way, um, where I, I was at the um, the um, municipal bond gathering, and I couldn't work out why everyone was so gloomy. There was like ten people there because it was obviously the bond market was just in chaos, and it turned out I'd gone the wrong day because I misread the email. But there you go. Moving on, um, <laughs> wanted to <laughs> pass out our Let's get away from our ineptitude, shall we? Um, you've written a couple of pieces this week on central bank digital currencies, and clearly. There's a push now on the part of central banks to really accelerate these programs as well. Yeah, it, it's interesting. Suddenly, there does seem to be quite a lot of chatter about this. Now, I think I think part of this is uh, because Davos is happening at the moment, right? I think yeah. Davos is happening. Yeah, yeah. So, indeed, yeah. so part of it is associated with that, right? Which is, I mean, frankly, you know, central banks don't get that much sexy stuff to talk about to so digital currencies is probably one of the more exciting things. Um, mm-hmm. But but also, so there's, there's two big things that came out this week, which was one, um, a BIS survey uh, on digital currencies, and they had, you know, what was it? It was 66 central banks covering 75% of the world's population and 90% of its economic output took this survey. Um, a few interesting data points, which was you know, 80% of the central banks said that they are kind of looking at uh, the possibility of central bank digital currencies. So, I mean, that yeah, looking well, at on, is a very sorry, vague we, term. Yeah, exactly. Well, yeah. I mean, how many times have we looked at surveys like where people are looking at using algos uh, next uh, year and stuff th- like that? Yeah, yeah. considering <laughs> the implications of Brexit and stuff like that. Yeah, um, yeah so, so, so obviously that is very vague. So let, let's get into some of the, the slightly better statistics. Um which was that uh, 10% of the central banks said they're likely to issue um, a... They basically divided up into different types of central bank digital currencies. But of kind of the 
general digital digital bank central bank digital currency sorry it's, it's cbdc is the acronym it's a bit cumbersome mm. um ten yeah. said said they'd like to issue one in the near term and 20% said they're likely to in the medium term now that's in both cases that percentage term has doubled since 2018 which suggests that you know that the central banks have been looking at this and actually they are finding use cases potentially for central bank digital currencies so and another yeah. great data point is over the uh, i think it was over the medium term i'm trying to find it exactly now um i think it was you know one fifth of you know the world's central banks having one fifth of the world's population are, are looking to issue something now this does come with a slight caveat which is uh, in the medium term 90% of the central banks looking at, at issuing digital currencies are in emerging markets um and in the yep. short term they are all in emerging markets so there's clearly a disparity there in terms of moving forward which you know perhaps isn't that surprising um if you're interested in this i, I would recommend you go and look at the article on the pnl website just because there's a lot of data points and there's actually some quite good graphics on there because the survey delved into the different motivations between uh, emerging market central banks and kind of developed economy central banks for issuing digital currencies so for kind of emerging markets it was much more about domestic payment efficiency payment safety and financial inclusion for developed economies it was um, a little bit about cross border payments and then also payment safety were kind of the two biggies there so there is there is kind of a difference on on why they're focusing in on them now the the second article that we published this week was again involving the BIS so Six, six central banks, in, in addition to the BIS, have created a group to assess the use cases for a central bank digital currency in their home jurisdictions. And these are all very much developed economy central banks. I mean, this is Bank of England, Bank of yeah. Japan, the European Central Bank, the Risk Bank, the Swiss National Bank, and the Bank of Canada. Now, again, m much with the looking at, right, there's, you know, remember in the, the blockchain hype, there were lots of press releases about coming together to form a plan to create a plan for using blockchain maybe one day. Um, yeah. So, I mean, with a grain of salt, but I think it's it's certainly showing that, that these central banks are very interested in it. And, and one thing that I think is particularly interesting about these developments, right, is that, you know, it, the central banks, they can they can kind of take as long as they want over this, but if they take too long... Um, the world is in danger of overtaking them. I said when we talked about the potential for Libra, Facebook's uh, proposed cryptocurrency for, for kind of cross-border payments, that the biggest argument they had with politicians who obviously hate Facebook in Washington is that, you know, if we don't do this, you know, China will, there'll be a, a Chinese equivalent that you won't, that will get adopted uh, like widely potentially and you won't have any control over. Um, I think, you know, some of the use cases, particularly I still think, you know, cross-border payments is, is a good one. Um, it, it could well be that if digital, if central banks take too long over this, then their options for actually um, issuing a, a, a digital currency that gets widely adopted might diminish because something else might appear. Mm. Do you think, though, that there's probably an element of geopolitics playing out here in the fact that yeah, the US are saying nothing but are probably advancing plans just in case China launch, you know, announces one oh. and launches one. Oh, absolutely. And I think the fact that 
the dollar has been kind of weaponized more kind of in the trade wars in the last few years and sanctions than it than it was typically before um it's it's doing two things right it's it's forcing uh other countries to look at uh, and we we wrote about this in in our kind of breakdown of some of the BIES numbers when we looked at different currencies. Yeah. It, it's causing other countries to look for alternatives, you know, alternatives yeah. to the dollar-backed system. And you know, digital currencies obviously represent one way of of escaping potentially. Potentially, this is all you know. It, yeah, yeah. A lot of moving pieces in some way in the distance, but that's one way of doing it, right? Clearly, um, you know, whether it's cryptocurrencies you know the world is going more digital you know cash is certainly in the developed world is is dis- you know slowly disappearing more and more um so i think i think the central bank i mean america doesn't want to i don't think lose its its status and, and the power that it has by having a financial system based around the dollar as the world shifts to more online transactions i think there is a huge geopolitical element of what are they going mm. to do to maintain that dominance in the digital transaction realm? And will they be able mm. to? It's an interesting one, isn't it? I mean, like, I'm looking at this yeah, from a, an old Giffords point of view. Um, I'm gonna, so they're all issuing, they're all going to issue their own digital currency, digital coins, digital currencies. What's going to be the difference, apart from the fact it's going to be settled online? I mean, yeah, so, at the moment, so, we, oh, yeah, as, as I've said before to you, yeah, I can't remember the last time I paid for anything with cash. Right. So the if there was no difference, then that would effectively mean that in geopolitical terms, America kind of wins, I guess. Right. Because yeah. then if, if, if it was, you know, your your digital USD is just a, an online version of USD that, you know, it's it's quicker and easier to move around, you know, on like you don't yeah. have to go through the old payment rails. Right. So it moves more freely and then it's just basically interchangeable with the regular US dollar. Then. That, you know, that would mean, uh, a kind of, uh, effectively, the status quo remains. It just, you know, yeah, it's just an efficiency a digital game. version. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, so, so if that's the way it pans out, then that's probably means that the U.S. has won that kind of geopolitical tussle. Right. What would be more interesting is, well, more interesting, but we'll, we'll put the cat amongst the pigeons more. Sorry, is, who's the geek here? It, <laughs> <laughs> is, is if, is if we, you know, if the central banks do take a long time to do this, and in the meantime we see an emergence of, you know, whether it's Libra, whether it's you know something from WeChat or Alipay or something, if we see something yeah. else, or you know, even I think this is very unlikely, but even you know somehow let's just say Bitcoin gets, uh, you know, becomes the yeah. new online digital uh, payment mechanism, um, what what happens then? I think is is interesting. Yeah. Because obviously, like, obviously the, the Libra thing has gone quiet, and I noticed this week that um, Vodafone left the alliance. Yeah. So there's another, yeah, another sort of big backers dropped out. There does seem to be losing momentum, and it maybe yeah, you wonder if it's losing momentum in part because the, uh, yeah, the central banks are, are, are maybe pushing it a lot, lot more. And I think part of Libra's strategy was if they can get into the emerging markets, then yes. that yes. would be a way to reach back. And, and if the emerging market economies are the ones that are leading this push towards, you know, CBDCs, you're right, it's very difficult. <laughs> then, yeah. Um, then uh, yeah, it, it would it would change. It's an interesting one. I think it's, um, I yeah, I, I guess we're early days, aren't we? This is not yeah, going to play out are, quickly, is it? 
No, we're not going to play. And, and you know what reminded me of the fact that it's not going to play out quickly today, which was um, I was at a um, I was at a, a press event, the, the CBOE annual press event, uh, and I will tie this back to what we're talking about. Um, and as as most people who are listening will remember, you know, CBOE were the first ones to get uh, Bitcoin futures out. They since kind of dropped it, um, I, but they were you know they were very their chairman. Uh, Ed Tilly was very kind of explicit in saying that CBOE will be, or CBO as it's now known, I guess, um, yeah. will be back in, in crypto, but they're just waiting for the ecosystem to evolve slightly. So they very much have not given up. They very much plan to be back in it. They're kind of just waiting to, for a little bit more evolution, waiting to see how it plays out, You know, waiting for maybe the SEC to approve exchange-traded products. And then they will kind of make their move back in, having, you know, they said, learnt from their past experience in terms of what works and what doesn't. So I, I do still think mm. there is, even now, there is an element of wait and see from quite a few people in this market. I don't know if you picked up on my very doubtful mmms there while you were saying, coming up with that one. Um, that sounds very much to me like someone going like, ah, maybe we shouldn't have pulled out of this thing. <laughs> So it's okay, everybody. We'll be back soon. Um, you can't look at it and think, well, you know, is there first mover advantage? Maybe not, but I think there's an advantage in staying in and getting some sort of product out there that people are using. And I think the dropping out and coming back in, I'm not sure that's a good way to ensure sort of user loyalty. And I'm not oh, sure how you I... come back in with a better product than that's already existing on some other exchanges. They, they may have missed the boat there. I may be wrong. I, I'm I, happy to be proved wrong for SIBO's sake. I, I agree, but I don't think they'd. Come, I don't think they'd come back with um, a, a a futures Bitcoin futures like they have. You know, they were saying yeah. you know, they, they're not getting loads of client requests saying, "Hey, we wish you had something just like CME has." Um, I think yeah. it's more likely yeah. that they will wait and then maybe you know an ETF. Once once yeah. that actually if gets they, SEC approval, they come in with an yeah. ETF product. Um, and and that's where yeah. I mean, they also you know they gave the example of um, of the VIX contract when when they first launched that um, they they actually it didn't go that well at first and they had to go away make some changes and then come back with kind of a change product now it wasn't a full scale retreat and then come back I, I take your point mm -hmm. on that but I, I don't yeah. see them like I said I, I don't see them coming back with a a direct futures and they they said it won't necessarily be kind of a Bitcoin product, right? They're, they're talking very broadly about the crypto space now. Um, but I, I still just think it's, it's just, like I said, yeah, that there is an advantage, I think, if you get a product going to staying in. Um, I still think there's also a lot of people sitting on the sidelines waiting to see how certain things play out before, before they really commit anything. Mm, including us. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> um, yes. Um, that's us for this week. I did want to actually just um, quickly let you know, Galen, that um, I think those regular listeners will know last week I mentioned a, a firm called Psychic Ventures who uh, who sent us a very insightful and very um, prescient release that was basically based upon the BIS survey. They've got in, they've been in contact again this week, and this time oh, nice. I mean, I'm not going to give I'm, I'm not going to give the firm away they're promoting, but it it says data gathered quote data gathered by fill-in name of firm, shows that 88% of all transactions 
um, in FX or in the dollar. And a euro dollar is a quarter of all foreign exchange transactions. Um, it does also say that the source of that is um, the BIS triennial survey that came out in September. So they're, they're still, they're <laughs> still flogging that dead horse. Yes, exactly, yeah. They're still flogging that dead horse, and they're not psychic enough to realize that nobody's paying attention and nobody in their right mind is going to give that any sort of coverage whatsoever apart from what I've just done there. So on that note, again, being psychic, we'll be back next week. Thank you very much for listening. Um, have a very good week. <laughs>